Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer. I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said... Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. M-S-W Media. Hey everybody, it's AG and welcome to Refried Beans, where we play an episode of the Daily Beans podcast from the same week, either one, two, or three years ago, so we can see how far we've come. So please enjoy this episode from days gone by and note the date in the intro. Refried beans, I like refried beans. That's why I want to try fried beans, because maybe they're just as good and we're, we're wasting time. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Thursday, February 3rd, 2022. Today, Trump considered blanket pardons for 1-6 insurrectionists before he left office. Colonel Alexander Vindman is suing Donald Trump Jr., Rudy Giuliani, and former White House staffers. Stuart Rhodes and Jeffrey Clark both testified to the 1-6 committee today with public hearings likely to begin in April. And Trump donated a million dollars to Mark Meadows' nonprofit just weeks after the formation of the January 6th Select Committee. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Dana Goldberg. Hello, 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 Dana. Hello, hello. For every once in a while, I get raspy voice, like whenever, because obviously you do the whole intro, and that as you're doing it, I have a thought in my head that says, what's my voice going to sound like when I say something? <laughs> I haven't spoken to anyone today. That's exactly it. I'm like, <laughs> and I'm Dana Goldberg. Nope, nope. All right. <laughs> I'm Dana Goldberg. 
Today we're going to talk about the news. That's I right. think that would be yeah, coffee the lady to, from, coffee talk <laughs> or, the, or the lady from Monsters Inc. Totally. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> love it. We have a great show today. I'll be talking with Jason Kander. He's a veteran and host of the Majority 54 podcast. He's a guy that was running for president, but backed out because he wanted to go get help for his PTSD. He's a war veteran. New book coming out called The Invisible Storm. So we're going to be talking with him later. That's a really, really great interview. You don't want to miss it. And there's just a, a lot of breaking news today coming out left and right. So let's cover it. Let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right. First up from Tara Palmieri at Politico. In the final days of his presidency, Donald Trump seriously considered issuing a blanket pardon. I love that. Seriously considered issuing a blanket pardon for all participants in the January 6th riot, according to two people with direct knowledge of the matter, one of whom is not Ken Cuccinelli. (laughs) Between January 6th and Joe Biden's inauguration on the 20th, Trump made three calls to an advisor to discuss the idea. Do you think I should pardon them? Do you think it's a good idea? Do you think I have the power? That's what Trump was asking the person who summarized the conversations. Another advisor to the former president said Trump asked questions about how participants in the riot might be charged criminally and how a uniform pardon could provide them protection going forward. Is it everybody uh, that had a Trump sign or everybody who walked into the Capitol who could be pardoned? Trump asked, and that's according to the advisor. He said, some people think I should pardon them. He thought if he could do it, these people would never have to testify or be deposed. Why wouldn't Donald Trump want anyone who stormed the Capitol to testify if he has nothing to do with it? Hmm, maybe because they were going to say it was all him. <laughs> yeah, or maybe there was even coordination between some of the top seditious conspiracists. Who knows? The people who spoke with Trump were granted anonymity to describe their discussions, frankly, with Politico here. The previously unreported conversation shows that Trump wasn't simply musing when he told supporters at a Texas rally last weekend he would consider pardoning people prosecuted for their role in the attack if, you know, he runs for president again in 2024 and wins. Even in the immediate aftermath of the riot, Trump was expressing sympathy for those involved and weighing how he could shield them from legal consequences. Trump's consideration of preemptive pardons quickly hit a wall. It was unclear how he could pardon an entire class of people that hadn't yet been charged. (laughs) Quote, you didn't know who the FBI was going to arrest down the road, the first advisor said. At the same time, the White House counsel's office was forcefully telling Trump what he could do and not do as president. Quote, there was a dangling threat that if he pushed too hard, White House counsel Pat Cipollone would leave. That's uh, what this advisor said. Cipollone declined to comment. That's how we know he's not the source here. (laughs) The second advisor said that Trump's interest in pardoning the participants was like many of the other ideas he floated in the past to a cadre of aides, more brainstorming and soliciting their opinion than deliberately adopting a plan. The person said while Trump considered the blanket pardon, at the time he was more focused on challenging the election results. The third advisor who spoke with Trump frequently in the final days before he left office recalled that Trump asked questions about whether he should announce his intention to run again before Biden's inauguration, like before he was even sworn in. Quote, at the time, he wanted to not just be the leader of the party, but flat out show the world he was running again and you're not going to stop him. Okay, but Trump learned that a formal announcement would trigger concerns about campaign finance regulations he'd be forced to comply with immediately after leaving office. (laughs) (laughs) According to two advisors, he settled on more general language. I'll be back. 
So yeah, that's, mm -hmm. yeah. AG, I want to thank you for giving me this story because I love it. Mm -hmm. I love it. Retired army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, dear friend of the show, as well as his lovely, amazing wife, Rachel, but Alexander Vindman, who, as we know, served on the National Security Council and emerged as a star witness against then-President Donald Trump during the 2019 Ukraine impeachment, is suing him. He is suing Donald Trump Jr., Rudy Giuliani, and, yes, the former Trump White House staffers, lots of them, alleging they conspired against him. This is awesome. Vindman, in a new lawsuit filed in D.C. District Court, said Trump's family, his lawyers, right-wing media, and others in the White House tried to intimidate and retaliate against him because he was willing to testify against the president. At that time, that was Donald, calling out Donald's entreaties of Ukraine for his personal political gain. And we, we saw that. It's what he got impeached for. Yeah, perfectly good phone call. He bluntly called the efforts to intimidate him obstruction. And the lawsuit articulating over 73 pages, Vindman's saga in Donald's first impeachment aims to capture the plight whistleblower's face after standing up to the powerful political machine. There was a lot of blowback. I know you know nothing about that. Nope, nothing. Not a thing. Vindman, the former director of the European Affairs at the U.S. National Security Council, he seeks an unspecified amount in damages, saying his complaint aims for, quote, long overdue accountability. Also named in the suit are former White House Deputy Chief of Staff Dan Scavino and Julia Hahn, a former Breitbart editor who worked in the Trump White House. So, Vin Mintz going Super for qualified. It. Oh, yeah, I'm sure she was. I'd love to see her resume. Yeah, I loved it. I got a text early this morning from uh, Rachel. She's like, doot, doot. I'm like, oh, shit. You guys got to come <laughs> on the show. She's like, hell yeah. That's awesome. So, yeah, I'm like, high fucking five. And this is just, what a group of incredible Folks struck McCabe, the Vindmans, uh, even Michael Cohen, you know, just like, hey, this is, you know, this is fucked up. Uh, but this this suit specifically so well written. And I think it's it's going to have a, a huge impact. Also today, Jeffrey Bosart Clark, the author of The Unsent Letter to Georgia, The Unrequited Election Fraud Love to Georgia, purporting that the Department of Justice had found election irregularities, which was a lie. And he did that to get him to send alternate slates of electors so that Pence could throw him out. And, you know, also to, to sow distrust in the election results. Well, he testified before the January 6th committee today, Wednesday. Now, at the time of this recording, it is still unknown whether he's invoking his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. This is the guy that Trump wanted to install as acting attorney general, but faced a mass resignation threat at Department of Justice if that happened. And if you remember, he's also the one who, after he was subpoenaed, was supposed to come in, but then he was sick. And so then they postponed it. And then he was like, I'm still sick. So they postponed it again. And now he's finally there. Beans? I'm going to put beans on this guy invoking the fifth. <laughs> we'll, we'll know soon. Because he, when he first went in, he's like, fifth, fifth amendment, privilege. I have privilege. And they're like, get, get out. Come back later. We'll subpoena you. Also before the committee today is Oathkeeper Stuart Rhodes virtually from jail, who has pled not guilty to seditious conspiracy charges. Now, he made a deal with the Department of Justice that he would not like a plea deal or anything. They just agreed he would invoke his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination for all questions regarding any of his actions from the election until now. So he's mostly saying like his military history, where he was born and, you know, how he got the Oath Keepers together, but nothing about his criminal charges. And uh, Jamie Raskin has told Hugo Lowell of The Guardian 
that the public hearings will most likely take place in April. Quote, yeah, had we not faced so much obstruction by Trump's entourage, we would be a lot further along now. Yeah, yeah, I brought this up. I was like, they did it to Mueller. They're going to do it to you. As of now, the committee has heard from over 475 witnesses, Dana. They've received 60,000 pages plus of documents and now have over 700 pages from the National Archives that Trump tried to block. Now, notably from Kyle Cheney today at Politico, the Biden White House has indicated in a letter dated February 1st, just a couple days ago, that a new batch of National Archives documents sought by the committee pertain to communications to Pence about his responsibilities in certifying the vote. And the letter also mentions some of the records pertain to a lawsuit in which the Department of Justice represented certain parties. I think they're talking about what Raskin referred to as a key piece of the puzzle, and that's the Louis Gohmert lawsuit against Mike Pence, which included false Arizona electors as plaintiffs, by the way. The archivist has told Trump's legal team that he's going to send these documents over to the committee on March 3rd, unless you, you know, have any kind of court intervention that probably won't work. <laughs> I would love to, uh, I'd love to see Gohmert in even more trouble over this especially this lawsuit against Pence. Okay, let's go over to bribe land, AG. So I'm taking you there. The listeners are coming with me. Get in, loser. We're going bribing. (laughs) Get in, loser. Former President Donald Trump's political action committee, his political action committee donated a million dollars to the conservative nonprofit organization where his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, huh, is a senior partner. That's according to a campaign finance report filed with the Federal Elections Commission Monday night. Hmm. Yes, in December, the House voted to recommend that the Justice Department pursue contempt of Congress charges against Meadows over his refusal to cooperate with an investigation into the Trump-inspired January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Well, the tax-deductible seven-figure contribution to the Conservative Partnership Institute is by far the largest chunk of the $1.35 million in donations Trump's, quote, Save America PAC made to the political allies over the last six months of 2021. That's according to the campaign finance report. Trump's PAC gave to 69 candidates for federal nice. and state. Yeah, I have a feeling Trump was like, that's it. Stop it right there because that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably Eric or Don Jr. <laughs> Let's make it 69. Trump 69 at AOL. Check me out. <laughs> so he gave to 69 candidates for federal and state offices, many of whom have embraced his lie that he was defrauded in the 2020 presidential election. He lost, as we know, to President Joe Biden by an electoral vote rally of 306 to 232. And what a glorious number by more than 7 million raw votes. Now, the contribution to Meadows' nonprofit stands out both for its size and for its timing. On July 1st, the House voted to establish a select committee to investigate the Capitol attack. Okay. <laughs> this is where this is one thing where it's true. I give the biggest bribes. They're the biggest, (laughs) most tremendous bribes. (laughs) No one's seen bribes like this before. (laughs) Trump's PAC. Likes of which you've never seen my bribes. (laughs) Trump's PAC donated to the Conservative Partnership Institute, which bills itself as a training ground for conservative staff and elected officials. He gave that on July 26th. Okay, so on July 1st, the House voted to establish the committee. The bribe went in on July 26th, or whatever you want to call it. The donation. Allegedly. I'm sorry, excuse me, the donation. Yep. (laughs) The PAC's largest contribution to a candidate, $10,000, went to who? Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, who has been a guide to the Donald 
in navigating Texas's Republican primary politics. Now, most of the donations were made in $5,000 increments, and they went to most of the candidates the former guy has endorsed. Now, recipients of, quote, Save America checks include several candidates running for statewide offices, including Secretary of State and Attorney General. Oh, uh, that's yeah. big because that's, yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We, we know that several of these forged electors are running for Secretary of State in some of these key swing states. So it makes sense. Right. And they also have influence over the administration of elections. Mm. So that's why they're putting some money, greasing, greasing the wheels, if you will. For example, Trump gave $5,000 to Arizona State Rep. Mark Fincham. Uh, yeah, a Secretary of State candidate who has called for the decertification of the 2020 election and a matching amount to Rep. Jody Heiss, a Republican in Georgia who voted against certifying the election and is now running for Secretary of State in Georgia. Arizona and Georgia were the states decided by the smallest margins in 2020. Huh, I wonder why those hmm. <clears throat> donations are headed that way. <clears throat> Interesting, excuse me, yeah, something in my throat. It's a bribe. The PAC's contributions... <laughs> Excuse me, I need some water. There's a bribe in my throat. Uh, the PAC's <laughs> contributions to Senate candidates included a donation to Republican Herschel Walker. Blech. Oh, yeah, you should hear his gay son. It's worse. Uh, the former University of Georgia and professional football star who played for Trump's team in the defunct USFL, the New Jersey Generals. That was the, the team. Now, on the House side, on the House side, Trump gave to Harriet Hageman, who is running a primary challenge to Liz Cheney. Okay, oh. so, yep. And then Cheney, as we know, and the reason this is happening is because she invited to impeach him for his role in the January 6th attack. And we know that she's one of two Republicans sitting on the committee to investigate it. So we know why that money is going there. Yeah, too bad the FEC is peopled with dickheads. Um, Who knows if this will get out of there or anybody will look into it. But it's news nonetheless. All right, I'm going to be right back with Jason Kander, New York Times bestselling author, veteran, host of the Majority 54 podcast, and a former soldier. So I'm excited to talk to him. You don't want to miss it. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. All right, everybody, welcome back. I am happy to be joined today by New York Times bestselling author, former Army Captain in Afghanistan, former Missouri Secretary of State and host of the podcast, Majority 54. Please welcome Jason Kander. Jason, hello. Howdy. Thanks for having me. Yeah. First of all, thanks for your service. Appreciate you. You too. Oh, no worries. Uh, although I often joke, you know, it was the Navy under Clinton, so it wasn't too dangerous. Well, I mean, it was still an inconvenience at, at, <laughs> at least, uh, you know, there's small places they make you all sleep in in the Navy. It's very small. Yeah. Thrice up. But I did sign up. I did serve. So did you. And I appreciate you. And I wanted to talk to you specifically because as a veteran, we don't run into too many progressive veterans. Well, I mean, in the circles I keep, yes, I do. And so whenever I meet one who's doing what I think, you know, call incredible work, I want to talk to them. And I want to talk to you about your podcast, Majority 54. Tell me about the name. Tell me about why you started it and how long you've been doing it. Yeah. Uh, so we started it in 2017. Uh, and it, the name actually at this point is a little dated, but, uh, it's the name. I mean, it was, it was named that because, uh, in 2017, you know, after I had run for the U S Senate and just barely lost, um, I had started this organization, let America vote. And I was getting around the country a lot. And let's be honest, like I was getting ready to run for president. So I was all over the country and people were talking to me about all sorts of things. And I, and I remember there was this just terrible malaise or like this uh, demoralization of people in the progressive movement who just felt like they must be so outnumbered. And 
I remember at the time, the reason we, we named it Majority 54 was, was to re- remind the country that 54% of the country had voted for somebody not named Donald Trump in 2016. And then the concept of the podcast, which remains the case, was to uh, help people have conversations with people in their lives who disagree with them or who are persuadable, but to actually engage them, not to shun them as, as has become popular on the left. And that doesn't require you to be compromising uh, in your views. It doesn't require you to adopt moderate positions. It's just about having meaningful conversations that change minds. And, and at this point, we also I have a co-host now, Ravi Gupta, and we talk about it in terms of how can campaigns, how can individuals, how can we be uh, not reaching across the aisle to make deals, but reaching across the aisle to bring people over because of the simple fact that y- y- the numbers don't work. You can't just you can't just talk to liberals and win. Like you, you have to go out and save souls. It's not enough to just say we have more people than them because we're not always going to. Yeah, and bridging that divide is is has it's tough. It's tough. I you know I constantly get emails and messages. How do I talk to my family member about this? Or you know how can I bring them back off the ledge? Because everything is so polarized now. But we have this incredible opportunity, a silver lining, I guess, if you will to bring in independent, moderate Republicans and Democrats into a tent just against autocracy and fascism and, and the, the far right wing, which is a very small percentage. And we might not see eye to eye on budgets and deficits and big government versus small government, but I think we can all see eye to eye on democracy. So w- what are some of the starting points that you find you can talk to people who might not share your same political views but certainly share our same views on democracy. What are some of those starting point conversations? Well, the, the basics that we talk about a lot are personalizing it and, uh, you know, utilizing the credibility that exists. So like if you're, if you're dealing with somebody that you have an interpersonal relationship with, there's a certain level of credibility and trust that is inherent in that relationship. And we argue that it's your responsibility to trade on that because look, they're not going to see an ad on TV that convinces them to vote differently. They're not going to see you know, uh, somebody come on to their television and do a talking head routine that's going to convince them. But if they're friend from church, or if, you know, you know them because your kids are in the same class, or, you know, you're, they're on the same little league team, or they're your neighbor, they've already consented to a relationship with you, uh, uh, you know, within which trust is built. And so if you are saying to them things that are not the same as what they're seeing on TV, if you say, for instance, right now, we're having a big debate in this country about uh, the nomination of a, of a black woman as the, uh, to the Supreme Court and this debate over whether that is nominating the most qualified person or whether that is identity politics. You know, my argument uh, is, look, there's never been a black woman on the Supreme Court of the United States. It's a perspective that has been missing since the inception of the country. And so it is an important qualification. Uh, and obviously, you know, the 115 white men uh, who have been on the court, they weren't put there because they were the most qualified. They were put there in many cases because they were the whitest. And so, uh, you know, there's those things. But if you say just that second part, you're not getting anywhere with anybody. But if you instead are dealing with somebody that you have a personal relationship with and you say to them, look, I, I understand how, how you can feel that way. I, I can see how you, you know, you could feel like, what does this mean for my job and that kind of thing? But I really feel that it makes our country better when we have people who, you know, like if you can personalize it and say, here's how I came to it. Here's the math 
that I, who is similarly situated in my life, did in order to arrive at my conclusion, they may not adopt the same conclusion as you, but you will soften their resistance to that conclusion because you've humanized it. Yeah, and I think humanizing it is is the key and and empathy too to to try to understand where the other person is coming from, whether they you or you them. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's difficult to to understand that perspective. But I'm you know I think if you really try, just you know even for a minute, it can it can make quite a difference. And I also wanted to talk to you today about your book that's coming out. It's called Invisible Storm: A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD. It comes out in July. And uh, I was hoping you could talk to us a bit about what prompted you to write it and, and sort of the kind of the structure of the book. Are, is this like a personal memoir, but connected to current events and, and how, you know, you do what you talk about doing on Majority 54? Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, it's a memoir of uh, a memoir that is a pretty unique story. I mean, it is uh, my experience of uh, pretty well running for president uh, while also having an undiagnosed and untreated psychological disorder, post-traumatic stress. Uh, and so, um, you know, I have had the great uh, benefit having, when I announced that I was stepping back from public life in October of 2018, and I announced that I was doing it to go to the VA and to get treatment for post-traumatic stress, I had this incredible reception that I didn't have any idea I was going to get, didn't know what was going to happen. But I've benefited from, you know, feeling that there were a lot of people in the country because it was such national news that were pulling for me. And that was great. But it also meant that I got to see the impact uh, on the stigma of me doing that. The, the, how many people wrote to me and said, you know, you've helped me see that, that I can get help. And, you've, and people who had already gotten treatment were, you know, saying to me, you've, you've helped me feel a little less stigmatized. And that was great. But after I went through therapy and, and achieved, you know, a chapter of my life that I refer to as post-traumatic growth, I realized that there were an awful lot of people who still weren't getting treatment because they felt the way I felt for a long time, which was uh, that it, it wasn't going to help, that they they didn't really believe um, or have any evidence that getting treatment for whatever they were dealing with was going to be effective. And for me, you know, if you look at popular culture, whether it be fiction or nonfiction accounts, it's really hard to even think of representations or portrayals of people with post-traumatic stress uh, who aren't like playing into some stereotypical what I call PTSD porn. They're they're robbing a bank to feed their heroin habit after beating their wife, and you know, and and it's all flashbacks, and 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 so there was a moment for me in my treatment where uh, I had, was really improving. And I was bothered by it. And I asked my therapist, the VA, like, how is it that I'm getting better and other people don't? And he was like, what are you talking about? And he pulled out all these studies to show me that, no, people who commit to the program and, and, and uh, the way you have, like, they get better. The evidence shows, like, you're supposed to get better. And so what I wanted to write was the book that I wish I had had a chance to read 10 years ago, the book that would help me see, you know, my, you know, help me see my own experience played out in front of me but also help me see that person uh, heal and go through the treatment so uh, and to get to the other side. So that's, that's what I wrote. Um, and uh, I'm really, it's the best thing I've ever written. It, uh, I'm, really, I'm really proud of it. Yeah, and I can't wait to read it. Having dealt with PTSD myself for, gosh, almost 20 years now, and you know, finally getting to the VA, thinking I'm having a heart attack when it's actually a panic attack, hmm. 
and never having been to the VA before, because, you know, we'll be honest here, the VA had a bad rap for a really long time. But finding out that the care that's available there, which I'm so glad too there now, they're making it available to folks who might have had another than honorable discharge, who might not be able to means test into, you know, free care at the VA, but the mental health care is, is available. I'm really looking forward to reading this book. And I do, I remember when you made your announcement and I was like, yes, thank you. Because I, I, at the time, I think I was watching Orange is the New Black. And of course, all the prison guards are former military with PTSD and they're all just absolute assholes. And you're like, why is this synonymous? Why, you know, why do we have, or sometimes we see these uh, active shooters or, you know, mass shooters who, well, they, you know, they're struggling with, with this. And I'm like, yeah, me too. And I don't, go out and do that. So I'm really, I'm so glad that you wrote this because I think it's going to help so many veterans and all sorts of everyone with PTSD. I mean, there's so much out there, especially right now with COVID and what we've gone through the last five years. And I think it's really going to help people see, you know, what's available to them. Well, I I appreciate that. Yeah, it is. It is a book where the backdrop is politics because that's what I was doing. I was, you know, basically running for president and then ended up running for mayor for a little bit. And then and then, uh, you know, going to the VA instead of all that stuff. But, uh, yeah, so in that way, it's, it's a pretty unique and interesting story, right? I mean, uh, but, uh, what it really is, is just a story about, you know, my experience getting treatment and then getting better. And the truth is like, there are people all over the place walking amongst us who have gone to treatment for PTSD because it's an injury and gotten treatment and now they manage the in- the injury the same way I manage, you know, a bad knee that I have, but I still run. And, but you're right. That's not what you see on TV. That's not what's portrayed. And we, we don't acknowledge that that is a big part of why people don't get help. Because if, if you don't know that it is something you can get better from, then you fear the diagnosis because it, it's, it becomes synonymous with a, with a terminal diagnosis. Because if you believe that it is going to be terminal for your career and ultimately terminal for your life because it will result in suicide, well, then why would you ever go get treatment? Why would you ever go get diagnosed? But what I learned and what I talk about a lot in the book and display through my experience is I learned that, oh, no, I, I had PTSD. I didn't treat it. I should have treated it. If I had, it would have been a very different story, but I went 10 years without treating it. And so then eventually one of my symptoms became depression the entire entire 10 years, I one of my symptoms was nightmares, so I couldn't sleep. And if you go 10 years without sleeping and you become depressed, then obviously you're also going to become suicidal. And, and so what I had to learn was through therapy, I learned, no, uh, suicidal ideation is not the result of PTSD. Suicidal ideation is a symptom of depression, which is a symptom of PTSD, which causes you not to be able to sleep. So like, had I dealt with it right when I came home, would have been a completely different story. Yeah. And samesies, 10 years is, is what it took before the, the symptoms started bubbling up to the surface. You, you can only hold it down for so long. Yeah. One last question for you. I worked at the VA for a long time. One of the things that, that we struggled with at VA to get folks in was, and this is part of the stigma, was that a lot of people with PTSD said, you know what? There's people with worse injuries. I didn't lose limbs. I didn't lose you know, I don't have shrapnel in me. I, you know, I didn't get hit by an IED. I want to let those injuries, those are more important. Those are more dire. They need more attention. And I think it's because of this misconception that, like you said, PTSD is just non-curable. It's terminal and it's, and, 
and also, you know, there's a lot of imposter syndrome. I mean, there's so many things piled up on top that, that make people not want to seek treatment. And, and so I was wondering if you had seen that or, or had encountered that, you know, well, my injury isn't, I didn't lose a limb, that kind of thing. One of the things I talk about most in the book is this idea of, you know, what I did wasn't that big of a deal. You know, we started this conversation with you saying to me, I was in the Navy under Clinton, it wasn't the most dangerous thing. So we, I mean, we started this conversation with one veteran sort of unnecessarily discounting their own service, right? Which is, which is, I'm not criticizing you. That's what we all do all the time. And the reason for that, and I talk about this a lot in the book in a lot more detail, is that one of the things that the military does is a very necessary form of brainwashing, which is the moment you get off the bus at basic, you are told, and you never stop getting told this throughout your entire service, what you're doing is no big deal compared to what other people are doing. And I can tell you, I was in Afghanistan and I was getting a very clear message. And I was by that point giving myself this message. What I'm doing is no big deal, right? The thing is when we get out, and that's a that's an important form of brainwashing because if it wasn't, we wouldn't go do the dangerous or scary stuff that we got to do. Like I was an intelligence officer who went out and uh, gathered information by sitting down with with very questionable people who were much more heavily armed than me in most cases and I was very outnumbered and nobody knew who knew where I was. It's was just me and my translator. Uh, out uh, very vulnerable for hours at a time. But I kept doing it because I was like, this isn't a big deal. I know people who are doing a much bigger thing. And this, I didn't get blown up. This isn't combat, you know? Meanwhile, like, then I came home and I'm having nightmares about being kidnapped and I can't, you know, sit uh, in a restaurant without facing the door. But that was really valuable for me there so I could keep going into those meetings and keep going out on the road. But here, it wasn't valuable to me. But nobody ever flipped that switch off for me. Nobody just, and that's the case throughout the military. Nobody ever sat me down and said, Hey, now that this is over, you should know that was some crazy shit. And, uh, and you're going to have to deal with that. And, and because of that, uh, and because of a lot of other factors that I talk about in the book, um, you know, we don't flip that switch off. So we are constantly convinced that we didn't earn whatever's going on with us. And, and it, it begins to feel, it very much feels like stolen valor. If you go and, um, you know, claim that mantle is how you end up thinking about it, or just say, yeah, I have PTSD. And a buddy of mine, um, who I talk a lot about in the book, has kind of been a mentor to me in the process of, of getting help. At one point when he was trying to convince me to go, he uh, was a Marine um, who did two combat tours. Um, and... Uh, and I, you know, I did one tour and we did different things and, um, you know, and he, he went through that getting blown up, getting shot at that, that traditional stuff. And I would always say like, man, I, I, you know, but I didn't do what you did. And he would say, look, first of all, I don't know that I would have been able to do what you did. Uh, it was scary in a whole different way. He was like, but it doesn't matter. He, he would say somewhere right now, there's a world war two vet sitting in a VFW hall saying, you know, yeah, I was at D-Day first wave, but I was in the back of the landing craft. He was like, that's what they teach us. They teach us that somebody did something uh, more. And what we all have to learn is, you know, my brain doesn't know what your brain went through. It, it, it's totally irrelevant. Um, you know, your brain went through what it went through and you can't rank your trauma out of existence. Yeah, I'm glad. Glad you said that. And, and I can't wait to read this book. My PTSD comes from military sexual trauma. So then mm. there's even an added. Right. I wasn't even anywhere near anything. You know, so it's a lot of work trying to overcome that. Mm -hmm. We all have different ways of discounting our trauma as if that's going to 
as if we can discount it into going away, but it, it doesn't. Yeah. Well, would you do me a favor? Tell everyone where they can follow you on social media, where they can get your book and where they can listen to your podcast. Sure. Thank you. First of all, uh, I am uh, at Jason Kander, J-A-S-O-N-K-A-N-D-E-R on both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, the book is called Invisible Storm, A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD. You can get it wherever you buy books. And the podcast is uh, Majority 54, uh, which you can get wherever you get this podcast. <laughs> awesome. It's been really great. Yeah, please subscribe. That's the key, right? Yes. Yes. Thank you. Free to subscribe. Do and it. And you can pre-order the book. Uh, yeah. Please do that too. For available for pre-order. Awesome. I will do that. And I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Thanks for all you're doing. And uh, I'll be following you. And, and hopefully we'll check back in soon as we get closer to the midterms to see what, what kind of uh, ground we've recovered. Yeah. And have me back on in July and I can sell this book all over again. Absolutely. Would love to. <laughs> Thanks very much, Jason right. Kander. Thank you. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the good news. Good news, good news. We're already scrolling and laughing at some of these photos. <laughs> the first photo <laughs> brings me a lot of joy. A lot of joy. Mm, me too. Oh, so good. Trump 69 at AOL. All right. So if you have any good news, confessions, corrections, anything you want to send us, whoopee stories, lovey stories, blanky stories, please send them to us by going to dailybeanspod.com and clicking on contact. We love these stories. We love your good news. Happy places, find the cat, what the mutt, whatever it is, send it in. I'm going to kick us off with the uh, first two today. First up, because I got I to gotta get the second one here. So good. You too. Anonymous correction. Love the show. It's Homes In. That's what I said. Not Homes In. I said Homes In. Okay. Uh, I think from Homing Pigeons. Yes, exactly. Big Bird is one. If you want Anonymous Corrector, I will, I will show you a, a screenshot of the it's, script. It's possible it was me? I don't know. Oh, uh, I don't know. But anyway, thank you for this great service to us all. Neither too bland nor too depressing. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you always know and show how we can fight and win. Margo from Mount Martha sends the same correction, adding hone means to sharpen, home means to target. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. I don't, I don't even remember now what we were talking about. I know that. They were, they were homing in on Pence's team. Oh, maybe it yeah. was you. And it wasn't actually you because you didn't say it. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. I anyway. Don't know. Now we know. Now we know. Thank you very Next up, much. <laughs> from James pronoun he and him. Dana mentioned she loves cats who fetch. So here's my sister's cat, Atticus, named for the fictional lawyer, wrestling with her dog Indy, so-called because we named the dog Indiana, with mixed success. Note the tooth. Atticus's favorite pastime is playing fetch with hair elastics. That's a good one. My sister or her partner will shoot one across the room and Atticus will bolt after it, legs flying in all directions, then trots back with it in his oh, mouth. Oh, cute. The second photo is another picture of Indy just because the light is so good in that photo. Look at this. The first cat's picture, like, I mean, you've got to, you got to see it to see it, but the cat's like, you're not going to do anything about this? Could, excuse me. <laughs> excuse me. The dog is <gasps> biting my arm. Oh, look at that. Lighting is, you're right. It's perfect. It is. That is a golden, the golden hour, hour. Right there. Mm-hmm. Yep. We all know about that, headshots. Seriously. All right. Thank you so much for those. We're moving on. We've got Cherise, a pronoun she and her. Hello, all. Thank you for all you do and for giving us this platform to share our good news. Back in the summer of 2020, I wrote to tell you about a care package project we were undertaking 
when we were assembling and delivering care packages to incarcerated people in California state prisons. 1.5 years later. Yeah, I remember. Ah, 1.5 years later, and we are done. Thanks to an incredibly generous donor, we were able to give a care package to every incarcerated, what? To every incarcerated Ooh. individual in the California prison system. That translates to over 100,000 packages. That's fucking amazing. We have received hundreds of thank you letters and are so grateful that we were able to make a small difference in the lives of those who are too often ignored, but who also suffered tremendously because of the pandemic. Who are we, you might ask? Well, that's my second bit of good news. We are Mount Tamalpais College. Is Tamalpais, right? I, I have never heard of this word. Well, it's I, Teresa, if I'm not saying Tamalpais College correctly, please let me know. Who last week received our initial accreditation from the ACCJC, the regional accrediting body for community colleges here on the West Coast. Nice. With that, quote, San Quentin State Prison is now the site of an academic institution unlike any other in the nation. It's an independent liberal arts college specifically dedicated to serving incarcerated students. This is so cool. Taken from an email that was sent out today. Now there's more information available at... We'll put the link in the comments. Thank you very uh, much. Yep. Yeah, we're going to put yeah, that. It's, it, we'll just we'll tell you it's mttamcollege.org slash about slash accreditation. There we go. Now, this accreditation opens many doors for our students. We could not be more excited for pet tax. Yeah. I give you my two crazy rescues. The picture with both of them in the car shows Pixie on top, Elliot under her. <laughs> and then we have two pictures of dogs in unexpected places. If you want to play with the mutt, Elliot's apparently Lasso Opso, Chinese Crested, Maltese, uh, Pekingese, yeah, Pekingese, Pekingese, right. I I guess we're, we don't have to guess, we have the answers. (laughs) And Pixie is Pekingese, Brussels Griffin, and Maltese, uh, which to, uh, much to our surprise, actually, I wouldn't, I would have sworn Terrier and Poodle, but what do I know? Thanks for everything and keep taking care of yourselves and this first picture. <laughs> oh my God, look at the second picture. Oh, look at the ears. They're so, ah. these dogs are such a cute mix. Oh, adorable. I wouldn't have guessed any of those. Maybe Maltese. I, I actually Maltese. thought there was a, a Westie, like a, a West Highland Terrier in the yeah, third Terrier, picture. Yeah, Terrier, I'm with you. Yeah. yeah, I'm with you on that too, uh, Dana and Teresa. It. Wow. Every single person incarcerated in California prison system got a care package. 100,000 plus packages. That's incredible. Absolutely. Mazel. Amazing. Wonderful, wonderful work. Next up from Karen, pronoun she and her. I've got a little bit of everything for you. Old but good news is my longtime Republican husband officially registered as a Democrat in order to vote for Biden. In no small part, thanks to you all and your wonderful news we can use. We got a vote. We got a voter. Under Things Kids Say, when my twin brothers were small, Lassie was a popular show and my parents had informed them that Lassie was a collie. So they started mistakenly calling cauliflower Lassie flower. That's funny. Which we still call it today. Another cute Things Kids Say or misunderstanding. When we were young and my parents wanted to get us involved or to understand politics, uh, we were watching the local returns. And they were listing the number of votes for each candidate in each ward. When Ward 1 came up, my sister said, oh, poor Ward. He only got one vote. (laughs) Oh, my God. She's now 61 and we still laugh about it. That's so great, Karen. Thank you for that. So very sweet. All right. This is from Patty. Pronounce she and her. Hello, fabulous beans queens. Some days just suck. It's all too much. And we need to end the day with a treat, right? 
lots of days, right? This is my recipe for insanely decadent, fuck this day, hot chocolate. That's the name. Mm -hmm. The recipe has evolved over the last two years, and I only allow myself to make it after midnight. The recipe calls for a couple of fancy ingredients, but you can simplify if you don't happen to have snooty cherry wood smoked sea salt laying around. What? You absolutely must use excellent. You absolutely must use excellent dark chocolate, though. It's the law. To start, put some chopped up chocolate in a mug. Half an ounce to an ounce, depending on how crappy the day was. I recommend 70% or darker bittersweet chocolate and not chocolate chips because they're engineered to not melt easily. And the whole point of this exercise is rich, silky chocolate. Okay, people? Pour in enough heavy cream to barely cover the chocolate and microwave it for 30 seconds or so. The idea is to get the cream hot enough to melt the chocolate. Now stir it up. And if you have anything less than a perfectly thick, creamy chocolate paste, put it back in the microwave for a few seconds. Stir it again. Now, add a little bit of vanilla bean powder, vanilla extract, or vanilla bean paste. They're all good. Add a pinch of smoked sea salt, truffle salt, or regular salt if you must. But the best way to fuck this day is to spoil yourself silly. Stir in as much milk as you want. (laughs) Use just a little bit if you want a rich European-style drinking chocolate, or more if you want something more American-style. Have it your way. Put it back in the microwave for 20 to 30 seconds or until it's perfect temperature for you. Stir it again to make sure it's perfectly smooth because fuck this day and you deserve the best. If it's not perfect, put it back in the microwave for a few more seconds. Now we go crazy. Grab that jar of Amarina, pronounced Amarena. So there you go, Dana. Cherries, they're fucking delicious. That's my addition. They go great in old fashions, by the way. All right. Mm -hmm. Cherries that you keep around for cocktails, old fashioned, and splash a little bit of the juice into the hot chocolate, add a cherry or two or half the jar if you want. I'm obviously in no position to judge. Relax, savor the rich decadent beverage and fuck this day. (laughs) I recommend Jacobson cherry with smoked sea salt for the salt. I use filthy cherries. Yes, that's a real brand, but you can also use Fabrio, Luxardo, or a fancy cocktail cherry. Neon red maraschino cherries are right, are right out unless you have no other option. Don't use those. And if you're that desperate to let me know, and I'll send you some better ones, because nobody should eat those vile things. I have no pet tax for today, but my cats boo and peek, send their love, and they insist that I must go to bed immediately so they can curl up on top of me. The end. Patty, you should write for recipe blogs. Seriously. Yeah, that was really good. (laughs) Fuck this day, hot chocolate. And now I want this. Yesterday it was cake, and now I want hot chocolate. I want them both. There you go. There you go. Mm. Thank you all for sending in your good news. This is incredible. Please continue to do so by going to dailybeanspod.com and clicking on contact. Dana. Yes, I do have some final thoughts because I have some exciting news. I was going to wait, but I want my Beans listeners to hear this. So if you have purchased a ticket for New York Live on February 9th in the city, it's going to be at the Green Room 42. Thank you. I can't wait to see you. It's not going to be a full venue, but we want to get as many people in person as we can. But... I also want other people who may not have been able to see me perform or can't see me perform live for whatever reason to also enjoy what's going to be some chaos because it's my first live show of 2022. We're going to live stream the thing. Woohoo! Yes. So if you could, I want you to go on to the website. It's the Green Room 42 and you'll be able to go to the venue tickets. You're going to scroll down to my show. It's just one date. It is the 9th of February. You're going to click on the live stream tickets. They're $19. 
That's all you got to do. If there's more people in your house and you want to purchase another ticket, it's going to help me out tremendously. It's been a hard year for a lot of live performers. And so that way, like six people aren't watching the same link. Just think about as if you were buying a ticket to the show, but you can live stream the show. It's February 9th, Wednesday night, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. And I'm telling the Beans listeners first, I would love to have people live streamed in your homes watching it. We'll have a small live audience and hopefully it'll give you a good uh, laugh track, if you will, to your at-home performance of Dana Goldberg Live. Amazing. Dana in your living room. That's it. Couldn't think of anything cooler. Thank you so much for sharing that. That is awesome news. I didn't even know that. This is the first time I'm hearing it. So it is breaking. Yes. Breaking news. It is indeed. Yeah. Thank you for that. Thanks. Great final thought. Everybody, you know, we're still chugging along through the week and uh, we'll be back tomorrow. And of course, don't forget Sunday, there'll be a new episode of Muller She Wrote and the MSW Book Club for Corruptible by Brian Kloss. I also want to thank Jason Kander for joining me today for the wonderful conversation we had. And until tomorrow, everybody, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, and take care of your mental health. I've been AG. And I've been DG. And them's the beans. Refried beans. I like refried beans. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money. Millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry... We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.